If you all want to stand and join me for the reading of God's word this morning. Our passage is from James 2, 1 through 13. It says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are the among has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. How are we? We're in church on Sunday before Labor Day, so we're not doing as good as we could be, I guess. We, uh, we're not at the lake. We're not anywhere else, but we're here. Um, We've been doing a little study on the book of James, uh, and we are in week three. But let me tell you a little bit about James before we get started. Uh, James was the brother of Jesus. Uh, This book that he wrote, this letter, uh, in a lot of ways is referred to as the New Testament Proverbs. So James, uh, I don't know if you guys have these types of friends, but you kind of have the two types of friends. You have the ones who, when you're having a really hard time, you're struggling, you reach out to, and you don't want any advice. You just want to say, hey, I love you. It's okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to make it. And then you have the other type of friends. That's who James is, okay? James isn't going to comfort you. He's not going to tell you it's going to be okay. He's going to get right to the punch. He's not going to tell you how you should feel. He's going to tell you what you should do. Um, That's who James is. Uh, I would say, if you're in church on Sunday of Labor Day weekend, the book of James is for you, for the serious people, okay? Um, Yeah, you guys, um, the people who don't laugh at jokes. uh, You guys, uh, the book of James. Uh, A lot of people have said that the book of James is... uh, James in the Hebrew is a stem from Jacob. And what we know about Jacob is that Jacob had 12 sons. uh, And these 12 sons eventually became the 12 nations of Israel. And at the very beginning of the book, it's addressed to these 12 nations, the 12 tribes who are in dispersion. So in a lot of ways, scholars have said that this book is a lot like a dad, Jacob, talking to his 12 sons, sitting them around the table. In a lot of ways, it's a dad talk. So I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of having a dad talk, and I say a privilege because sometimes it doesn't feel like a privilege, but when you look back in life, it's a privilege to have a dad talk, to have a dad who sits you down and says, this is son, daughter, you are not doing it right, and I love you enough to tell you that you're not doing it right. So this is a dad talk that we're about to get into today, and we're going to talk about confrontation and then invitation. So he's going to confront us first, and then James is going to invite us into the love and the life of Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your presence and for your grace. 
uh, for the moments that we get to share here together. Um, I don't have anything new to say this morning. Nothing hasn't been said already. I don't have anything uh, profound by any means. Um, and in a lot of ways, we don't need more information or more content this morning. We, we desperately need more of your presence and more of your spirit. We need to encounter uh, the God of the Bible. We need your spirit this morning. So we invite you uh, just to be with us and to illuminate your word, to bring it, uh, to allow it to produce the fruit in our lives that, that your word says that it can. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, James, he dives into it right away. Doesn't pack any punches and he goes for it. Verse 1 right away, he says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. And favoritism can be translated or could be, uh, has a lot of other synonyms, could be prejudice, uh, could be partiality is what it says in a lot of other versions. But what James does is he sits his kids down and he says, you can't love God and be prejudiced. And to be prejudiced, let me, let me define this, it's, 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 to, it's to be in favor or against one thing, person, or group compared with another, usually in a way that's considered unfair or not right. So he's saying, you can't do that. You can't say, I trust Jesus with my life, uh, with my afterlife, with all that I am and, and all that I'm going to do, and be prejudiced. You can't love God and ascribe more value to other people than others. He says you can't do it. Of which most Christians would say, yeah, for sure. Down with that. Absolutely. Because, well, we, we understand the Imago Dei. We understand that uh, as, as people, just as, as, as humans, we've been made in the image of God. We understand the Genesis 1 story that God, uh, he spoke and then he breathed life into people. He said, in my image, I created them. So all of us have some kind of value just because we've been made in the image of God. It's, it's this human dignity that we would just say, for sure, I'm behind that. I got it. But I think in some ways, this story that James tells that, that we just read, this illustration that he's trying to give us seems so ludicrous, so like not, not uh, contextual to our time that we can kind of write it off and say, well, I definitely am not going to do that. Right? He tells this story of, well, there's a rich guy who comes in with his flashy ring, and you say, hey, bro, we got these. I guess we didn't have any today in church, so we, uh, we just left the front row uh, empty. But what he says is, you can't bring that guy in and put him on the front row and then put the poor person who comes in in the back row. Obviously, right? Like, no one's going to do that. Just out of, like, social awareness, we're never going to do that. So we have this temptation to just kind of write off what he's saying and say, yeah, for sure. I would never do that. I, I love people. I'm kind to people. Um, and, and, I'm not, and I'm not prejudiced. On my own journey that I'm on, I'm, I'm learning a lot. And I'm learning that I've lived a lot of my life in a, in a culture of bias and prejudice, and I didn't even really know it. I might not have been knowingly prejudiced or knowingly uh, uh, biased or partial to people, at least not on purpose, but I've been immersed in a culture that is. And I would have said, no way, no way am I prejudiced, no way do I have these thoughts, or no way do I have bias. I love everybody, of which all of us can get under this umbrella of saying these types of things. I like people. I don't, I don't, I don't dislike anyone. I was kind of like that fish. You guys know the story, right? The, the fish who asks, who's asked by another fish, hey man, how's the water today? And I'm like, bro, what, are you t what is water? But I've been swimming in water that was full of bias and prejudice and didn't even know it. I had gills and fins to help me breathe and succeed that I didn't even know I had because I'd been just immersed in the water that I didn't even know what water was, but it's just the culture that's been all around me. 
And in a lot of ways, that's what it means to be a white, middle-class man in America. It's to be unconscious to the realities of race and racism and prejudice and the hurts and pain that goes on all around me. It's a really easy thing to form a life to pursue the American dream and just be ignorant to all of the suffering and the pain that goes around us. Because in a lot of ways, the American dream points us towards a life of comfort when the life of Jesus calls us into something totally different. Let me tell you a couple stories. Um, when I was in college, uh, I'm getting better, but I, I've always struggled with a, a lot of like irresponsibility. So I, uh, I think I like ro- rolled through a stop sign uh, whenever. I was like a sophomore in college, right? Like ca- California stop in Colorado, it's fine. Uh, but rolled through this stop sign, got pulled over. Um, the lady start, comes up to the, to the car, says, hey, hey, can I get your license, registration, whatever? I'm like, yeah, sure, it's fine. Give her my license and registration. She takes it back. It's been a really long time. She's back there 15, 20, 25 minutes. I'm listening to K-Love. I turn my K-Love music up a little bit louder because that tends to help most of the time when you're like a little bit nervous about, hey, maybe I'll get off the hook. Maybe I'll get a ticket. Turn up K-Love. 91.1 is what it was in Greeley, Colorado. Turn that, turn that sucker up and listen to it. Bump it. Um, officer goes back. Officer is still back there. Another cop car rolls up behind her. And I'm like, what is going on? I just rolled the stop sign. Nothing big here. Um, she comes up to my window. I roll it down. She tells me, hey, son, she can tell just the fear on my face. People say like, uh, we're like sponges, that whatever's in us, when the pressure comes, it's like squeeze, that's what ends up coming out. Well, the pressure came and all the, just the softness that was inside of me just boiled out of the surface. I think I was crying, I was teary-eyed. I was like, ma'am, I don't know what's going on, I don't know what's happening. Because she told me, uh, I'm gonna have to arrest you. Uh, you, you have a warrant out for your arrest because you didn't pay. She like knew right away you didn't pay a parking ticket from like a couple months ago, so you've had a warrant out for your arrest. I'm crying. She's being so sweet to me. She's saying, look, it's okay. Uh, I'm sure this stuff happens. Do you want to use my cell phone? You can call your mom. I'm like, yes, please. Let me call my mom so she can come get me. I'm so scared, right? So she takes me in. She takes me to jail. I get booked. I get all this stuff. I'm just like horrified, feeling so bad. But the whole time, she's being over the top kind to me, over the top nice to me, maybe because I look so scared. But I have friends of color and I have people uh, of different backgrounds than me who that's not the case with them. I have friends who've said that they, they, have to have, they have to be given a talk as a 14, 15 year old uh, young black man to say, hey, this is the talk that we're gonna have of how you are to respond when you're pulled over. Because the reality is that your life looks different than, than your white friends does. So for me to just be totally afraid but totally taken care of was to live in a life, live in a world, and live in a culture that, that's, that was prejudiced, tw- not, not, not against me, but towards me. That was biased, not against me, but, but, but in my favor. And in a lot of ways, I didn't even know it, that there are young, uh, young black men and women who are shot just by, by, by police officers. And in, in a lot of ways, we, we've heard the, the famous Will Smith quote that racism isn't getting worse, it's just getting filmed. That there's things that we're seeing now of police brutality and hate and injustice that are happening in these same situations. So I've been flooded in this, in this culture of bias. I've never been followed through stores. I've always seen representation. Any, any job I could ever want, I've always seen someone that looks like me in that position of authority or power when I know for my brothers and sisters of color that that's just not the case. That I've lived in a world of prejudice and bias and been immersed in a culture of it. This, on top of more, I'm, I'm definitely sure there's more that I'm totally not aware of. And not only has it happened 
to me or for me, but it's happened through me. And I've shared this story before, uh, but probably six months ago, I was, uh, I was getting ready to preach uh, on Acts chapter 3 uh, to our church on Sunday. And uh, our Athletes in Action, I work for a campus ministry on, uh, on campus called Athletes in Action uh, for, uh, just for athletes. And uh, our, our team of people were going to this homeless day center called Turning Point. We go there every week and we just kind of do a Bible study and hang out with them. And uh, on the way there, one of our other staff people called me and just said, hey, uh, I'm not going to make it. I'm supposed to lead the Bible study. Can you lead it? And can you do the teaching today? So I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, I'm about to preach on Sunday. Let me get up there on, on this Wednesday morning at Turning Point. And I'll just uh, send it, as the kids say. I'll let it ride. Um, so I get there, and I, uh, I, I, just, I just go. I just kind of go off the rough notes that I had and, and preach. I had, I, I had no fears. I had no nerves. I didn't because ca- quite frankly, I didn't care what they thought about me. I, it doesn't, doesn't really matter, right? And then three or four days later, I, I, I come to Trinity, and I, <laughs> I'm nervous. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. I, I care what you, what you guys are going to say about me. It's the same thing, but my heart posture is totally different. I preach, I get in my car, and I drive home, and I had one of these moments uh, where the Holy Spirit just, just came in a really powerful way, not, not in the kind of feel-good way, but in, in just a, a way of conviction that I just realized I, I, I had ascribed so much more value to this church, to these people, than I had of the, of the Turning Point Homeless Day Center. That at the very heart of it, this is the prejudice that lies within me. And we all tend to do that. We all tend to favor, mostly subconsciously, the wealthy, the socially connected, the popular people groups. We're forced to ask these questions. Do I I respond a little bit more quickly to a text from an important or popular person than someone who's more difficult or more needy? Do I get frustrated when I'm in line of a person who, who doesn't speak English fluently and I've got to wait an extra 10 or 15 seconds? We all have these things inside of us and in some ways, I'm just tired of trying to hide it. If I believe in a God who is so gracious and kind, who sees me in all my brokenness and all my weakness and still chooses me and loves me, I should not have to hide these feelings and these thoughts that I have. But in our moment, and especially in our cultural moment right now, we are not taught to deal with the deep stuff, but we're taught to hide it and then put on a front that we actually don't feel this way when we, underneath it all, we do. If I can just post the right thing, if I can just say the right thing, or, or more, more realistically, if I can just not say the wrong thing, I'm good. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie Catch Me If You Can, but that's what it feels like in some ways, that I'm just trying to elude the criticism of some people while, while still harboring this deep darkness that is deep inside of me, trying to hide the prejudice that's in me, trying to hide the bias that oftentimes fills my mind and heart as I go about life. And we all do. We try to hide it. And in hiding, there's no healing. So James brings us back to what God is actually concerned with. James chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, God is concerned with your evil thoughts. Your evil thoughts. The phrase, the, the, the same thing, is the same thing that Jesus said when he says, out of the heart comes your evil intentions, that whatever's on the inside, that's what God actually cares about. So before James is addressing a corrupt way of living or a corrupt way of, of doing things on the outside, he's, he's addressing the, the corruption that lays within us, that we use worldly standards, that we root uh, dignity and value in wealth and status and things other than human dignity. 
And I've noticed on my particular journey in which I'm learning a lot. And some people say it's a learning curve. It feels like a learning cliff in a lot of ways. Like I'm just trying to figure it out and I feel like I'm so far behind. The history of our country, not just white history, but but black history. And so many other people who call this country home, a country that's built itself on, on, on racism, on the backs of mass genocide, mass slavery, and mass incarceration based on the people or the color of people's skins in this country that I love, but we have to actually acknowledge the brokenness of it in order for us to walk into the healing of it. And James is addressing, addressing prejudice in this regard uh, because of his context. James is the marginalized people group, and he's talking to people of the marginalized people group. So what he's forced to do here is to say, hey, he's only addressing the heart stuff because he's saying you can't feel this type of way about the people that are above you. But if he was to flip the script here and talk maybe to us, people with maybe more power, people who aren't marginalized, he wouldn't just say it's prejudice, but he, he would call it, especially cross-culturally, he would call it racism. Racism would be just, it would be the same prejudice plus the power to actually harm people with it. It's the prejudice plus the power to use that prejudice that lies inside of you for your benefit. So James wouldn't just address the one-on-one personal stuff, but he would address the systemic realities of the day. He would say, you don't just need to be kind, but you need to follow the invitation of Jesus into a life of love and justice. See, James's antidote for this problem is absolutely nothing new. It's, it's the age-old command of Jesus. James chapter 2, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and then you are doing well. So how do you know if you're doing well spiritually? We ask that question all the time. How, how you, man, how are you doing spiritually? Insert, I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more comments. But how do you know, based on this verse, how do you know you're doing well? James would say, are you a loving person? See, this is the goal of following Jesus is to become a person of love. And in a lot of ways right now, as, as people with power and understanding all the complexities of all the different people who are in here, not, not, re, not, not saying we're all in power, but as people of power to, to walk in love is to walk in justice, to walk in uh, laying down our power and our privilege for the sake of other people. So James is confronting our cultural Christianity right to its face and saying, this is the summation of the law. This is the summation of what it means to actually follow Jesus. Are you loving people? And I don't know if you notice this, but we, we tend to emphasize the points of the law that we're naturally good at, right? The points of the law, like, 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 like the purity culture or the, hey, I, I'm not really a drinker guy, so I'm going to really emphasize that one. And we tend to always do that. And that's what he says here. He says, but if you, if you, uh, if you don't murder, but you commit adultery, you, you, you fail the law. You fail all of it. If you're missing in one part, you're missing all of it. So if we fail in love and justice, we fail completely as Jesus followers. And the way we love our neighbors in this moment is through the biblical phrase, justice. Not just kindness, but in the context of the passage, it's to participate in what the Bible calls justice. And this is derived from the Hebrew word mishpat, which refers to retributive justice. And it involves way more. It means not just intellectually agreeing, that we are all made in the image of God and we should probably treat each other that way, but it's actively taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent justice, to prevent injustice and walk in justice. So one practical from this church 
Uh, you can get with Emily or Jeremy after the service or, or at any time. But one of the practices that we're doing is we, we, we want to have a presence in a neighborhood uh, of people with, with, with single moms, people who've been marginalized, people who are financially hurting, uh, that, that's really close to a lot of our neighborhoods. It's down in this Bethany neighborhood. And we just want to be a presence there. We want to see how we can best serve the neighborhood, be with them, immerse ourselves in relationship with them so that we can help them and be with them. And this call, so this is a practical thing that we're doing, this call to love and justice, the crazy thing about it is that it's actually for our freedom. That's what we'll see. Verse 12, he says, So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty or the law of freedom. That every invitation of Jesus, no matter how hard it sounds like a sacrifice, it's always to more freedom. And as you do this, as you obey God by loving people and walking in justice, you actually find freedom. So our joy and our freedom and the peace that we're so desperate for in this moment, it's not actually found in a life of more just self-help and, and self-focus, but it's, it's found in a life of sacrificial love for our neighbor. So bringing it back to, to our, our presence in this Bethany neighborhood, there's this quote by, by Lilia Watson. She says, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you come because your liberation is bound up in mine, then let us work together. So we don't, we don't even go into the Bethany neighborhood or we don't participate in justice looking to just be a helping hand and do what God has called us to do and make ourselves feel a little bit better. Even though these aren't necessarily bad things, intentions are everything. And our intention is that we enter with the understanding that my liberation, my freedom is bound up in your freedom. That the Christian message of freedom is that if you're not free, then I'm not free. And this is a vital perspective change. That we don't enter looking to bring God, but instead we enter looking to meet God and his people in ways that can change us and shape us forever. And this is what we see all throughout the scriptures. Jeremiah 22, 13 through 16, he says, He judged the cause of the poor and the needy, and then it was well with him. Is this not that you know me, declares the Lord. See, our ability to know God, our ability to really know him and walk deeply with him, it is tied up in how we participate in loving our neighbors and participating in justice and how we interact with the poor and the needy. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 10 and 11, it says, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and, the, and then the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. This is a promise as we walk in justice, as we pour ourselves out, then God meets our needs. It's what we were wired to do in the upside down kingdom of God. It's how we were created. Even Jesus, he says, in one of his best invitations that we love so much, that I love so much, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take, your yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The message version says, learn from me, watch how I do it, and I will give you rest. That as we offer rest to other people, we find rest in God. It's, it's how we were wired and functioned. Um, I grew up, <laughs> uh, I, I played basketball in college, but I grew up, uh, I remember being like seven years old, getting off my like little dribblers game. That's what we called it when you're seven. Uh, little dribblers game, and my grandpa would be there, and he would tell me exactly how many points and how many rebounds I had. 
uh, at like seven years old. That does a lot of harm to a little kid's soul to make him not think that he's the center of the universe or the, the, the main guy on the team. So I used to get off the floor. He'd be like, hey, Cam, good job. You played 10 minutes. You had seven points, four rebounds. Uh, way to go. That's just, that just in me now forever, okay? So I got to high school, I got to college. Everyone asks you when you're, when you're playing, hey, how many points did you have? I would always say, you know, I, I don't know, just as long as the team won. I always knew, I always knew how many points I had. Uh, even now, anytime I go to a park or a gym, I just kind of naturally think everybody's probably here to rebound for me, right? Like that's just kind of what we're here to do. Not the case. Um, all the way into college, when I had a really hard time with this because I was playing really bad and all I really cared about was, was scoring. I just wanted to, just wanted to get, get mine, get my buckets. I was just always thinking about how can I get off this screen and get this shot off and always kind of focused on that. And then my, I, I talked to a teammate about it and he was like, hey, bro, here's one of the things that I do. And he used this phrase. He said, bro, you really just got to lose yourself in the game. You got to lose yourself in the game. And what he meant by that was you just, get, you just got to get yourself caught up in the competition. Just get caught up in winning. Do whatever it takes for the team to win. And as you do, everything else just falls into place. And, and you know what? It, it, it almost always worked. Every time I was just so focused on whatever I needed to do for the team to win, things would just naturally come my way. Things would just kind of fall into place. It was, it was, it was a game changer for me in a lot of ways. And, and what he didn't know is that he was tapping into a deep biblical truth. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added to you. As we seek God's righteousness, his horizontal rightness, where God is king here on earth as it is in heaven, where, 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 where things are brought back to the, the shalom that they were created in, as we participate in that, as we seek that, and as we pursue that, then everything is added to us. So in the same way I need to get lost in, in the game, we just need to get lost in the mission and the purpose and the love of God. So maybe this invitation that Jesus is inviting us into, maybe the joy that you're looking for, the peace and the contentment that you're really searching for isn't found in more self-care, but it's found in a missional life of justice for the hungry and the poor. Maybe it's as we serve other people that we ourselves are served by God. And this is the way of Jesus, both to us and then through us. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mic drop, boom. So what he's saying here is because we have been shown mercy, we show mercy. And that's always the order. Because we have been shown mercy, we show mercy. The mercy of God is the compassion of God. The way of Jesus is a way of compassion, compassion to us, and then compassion through us. So, so if we find ourselves lacking compassion right now, just like at a heart level, if you find yourself numb to the pain of the world and not, not, not feeling the burden of the hurt for other people, you don't need to try harder. You need to receive compassion from Jesus. You have to receive compassion before we have any power to give it. And compassion, the Greek word for compassion is the same in all the texts and refers to, it, most literally, it's the bowels or the guts of a person. It's the ancient way of saying what rises up in the innermost being of someone. That is compassion. Compassion reflects the deepest heart of who Jesus is. It's what drives and directs and moves Jesus. It's what moves him towards the crowd when he's dead tired, 
when he's had enough and he's exhausted, he looks out and he sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd. They need a leader and his compassion pushes him through his fatigue and into the life of people. Seeing the hurting and the helpless and the marginalized is what stirs up compassion in Jesus. It's what, it's what leads him. It says again and again, he felt compassion on them and then he healed them. What, what leads Jesus to actually doing work is his compassion for people. And again, this is towards us first. Time and time again, it's the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and the undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but who Christ naturally gravitates towards. So right now, in this moment, I always think it's interesting too, Jesus starts his, his, his sermon on the mount with saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. So even as we long to live out lives of justice, we first have to identify as the poor. We have to identify as the spiritually bankrupt, the spiritually hurting, so that Jesus can minister to us. There's this Henry Nouwen quote where he says, compassion asks us, where is the hurt? to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out to those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak and vulnerable with the vulnerable and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. So even to circle back to where we started, are you okay being broken? Are you okay looking at the realities of who you are and receiving the compassion of Jesus because that is the only way that you can be a compassionate presence to other people. And this is, this is the power. This is our only hope moving forward in this, in this cultural moment right now where everyone sees, has this, has this vague, blurry vision of what the kingdom of God is. Even our, even our culture it wants it, they articulate it, but they have no power to do it. It's what Mark Sayers calls the kingdom without the king that we can't do any of this without the power and the presence of God and without the acknowledgement that no one wants justice more than Jesus does, that no one wants these things to be reconciled more than Jesus does. And it's not a self-effort or a self-reliance, but it's an, it, it is the absolute power and job of the Holy Spirit. So first it's confrontation. Where are you at today? Where is the prejudice that lies down within you? And then what's the invitation to follow into the life and into the way of Jesus that we might find and be free as we are freedom for others. So let me pray.